For 20 years, Cultural DC has been making space for art. That includes physical spaces like galleries, theaters, and affordable housing for artists, but it also includes making space in the conversation for art. In this brand new episode of the Cultural DC podcast, we sit with two influential figures in the art world to discuss their latest projects and reflect on Insurrection, the first ever film by Andre Serrano, produced by Apolitical and presented in collaboration with Cultural DC. Insurrection premiered at Cultural DC's Source Theater on January 6, 2022, on the first anniversary of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Joining our podcast today are artist Andre Serrano, curator Sylvia Serafinowicz, and Cultural DC Executive Director Christy Maselman. Andre Serrano was born in 1950 in New York City and later attended the Brooklyn Museum Art School from 1967 to 1969, where he studied painting and sculpture. Andre Serrano is an internationally acclaimed American artist whose work has been shown in major institutions in the United States and abroad. His photography work is featured in numerous museums and public collections. Sylvia Serafinowicz is chief curator at Apolitical and a public speaker and writer based in London. Serafinowicz sees exhibitions and public programs as a platform to advocate for human rights and against discrimination, inequality, and violence. Christy Maselman is the executive director and curator of Cultural DC. Since her appointment in October 2018, Maselman has facilitated projects like Ivanka Vacuuming by Jennifer Rubel, Mighty Mighty by Devin Shimayama, and This Is Not a Drill by Jefferson Pender. In addition to her curatorial work, Maselman oversees Cultural DC's art space development work, which curates partnerships between arts organizations and commercial real estate developers. This program is presented in collaboration with Apolitical. Apolitical explores radical knowledge through the principle of cultural terror. Working with artists and agitators, the collective platforms voices that undermine the dominant narratives of our time. Based in London, Apolitical exists outside the commercial art world, functioning through interventions, commissions, and a collection of contemporary art. Learn more at a-political.org and at apolitical.org on social media. We've been discussing having an exhibition dedicated to, well, that would allow Andres to look back at, at, at this event over the last um, 12 months, really. And Andres, you've been thinking about do is doing this film at least since April, if not January mm-hmm. last year. So my, my first question to you really is about your dedication, very long-standing dedication to, to Trump, because you photographed him for the first time in 2004 mm-hmm. for your series America on the set of The Apprentice, which was a very significant moment, right, in, in mm-hmm. the career of Trump. And when Trump became the president, you decided to do yet another portrait, and you continue uh, that project. So I, I'm really curious as to your motivation and what kept you, you know, so involved over the last couple of years. Uh, okay, my, my motivation for anything is as an artist. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm, it was dedication to Donald Trump, it was just an, a desire to continue the portrait I did of Donald Trump when I started the game, All Things Trump, which is an installation of over a thousand objects. And I spent almost a year collecting them, buying them on eBay and other auction houses. And it, it was a, a real job. It was a lot of work because I spent many hours on eBay each day. Uh, looking for things that I wanted to have for the game. 
and be everything in the game, all things Trump, has to has, uh, bears Donald Trump's name on it. You know, they're either items, I, objects, merchandise created for Donald Trump's uh, empire, for his hotels, for his brand, for, for his everything. And so, you know, once I, I felt I finished the, the show, the installation, I was fortunate to go back to my old friends, A Political, a London-based organization that supports cutting-edge artists and who had supported me with, with a, a previous work called Torture. And, and I told A Political, you know, I got this show and I need a space for it. And so they not only found me a space in New York, but they, they produced the installation. You know, they, they actually, Sylvia came down to New York from London, and she, she made sure everything went right for the installation of that exhibition, and it took uh, several weeks, so the lighting, everything, the display cases, everything. So uh, we showed that in April of 2019, and then I thought I was done with Trump. I was happy not to have to spend every mo uh, moment, every waking moment thinking about what can I get that, you know, from Donald Trump's empire that I could put in the show. And, you know, I got a lot of small things, but I also got the ego sign, which is a 11 foot high ego sign. It's an ego, it spells the word ego, and it's on a base and it rotates and it spells the word ego and it came from uh, the Trump Taj Mahal Ego Lounge. And to me, that that uh, ego sign says everything you want to know about Donald Trump. Everything revolves around Trump's ego. And so in addition to, to the ego sign, the centerpiece was also a portrait I did of Tom, uh, Donald Trump in 2004 for my America series. And this, this portrait, we blew up as an eight-foot banner. And so it was very high up. And, and so... After that installation was finished, I, you know, I was able to breathe and not think about Donald Trump for many months until the insurrection happened on January 6th of last year. And then a few months later, I, I, felt, I, I, I felt like now this too, this insurrection, that too was now part of Donald Trump's legacy and should be included in all, games, all, all things Trump. And so that's when I, I contacted Becky Sherwin, the director of A Political, and I asked, uh, I, I, I said, I, I want to do this, because uh, by this time, A Political was already involved or talking to uh, Cultural DC about bringing the exhibition to, to Washington, DC. And so then the, the idea, my idea was I'm going to do a video that will be included in, in the installation. But then as the months, and, and, then, and to that end, Apolitical provided me with George Chetwood, who works for Apolitical, and he amassed all, you know, well over 100, maybe close to 200 videos uh, from the internet. I don't know where he sourced them from, parlor, everywhere, that was insurrection footage. And so I spent many months uh, going through that and then making uh, detailed notes to give to Sebastian ba Patcher. And Sebastian edited the film. And not only edited, 
but Sebastian also made the soundtrack, the, the effects, everything. And it was Sebastian's idea that he said, what about this? What about if we, we approach it and present it like it's a Donald Trump production and reference uh, Birth of a Nation? And I thought, that's brilliant. That's great. Because I always say I like to make my work, you know, so that it's a mirror. You know, it's all in the eyes of, of, of the uh, viewer and open to interpretation. And I certainly, I, with the game, I didn't try to be anti-Trump. I'm trying to let Trump speak through him, for himself through his merchandise. And in this case, I thought, that's brilliant, you know, we'll use birth of a nation. And we're not judgmental about it, but we do make this connection between that film and this film in a very broad way. But notably for me, that is that the fact is that the, the Birth of a Nation is based on Thomas Dixon's novels and the, the Klansman. And, you know, Thomas Dixon was actually a Klansman himself. And so I, I, I thought, that's great. And to clarify things, also, in addition, Sebastian told me about the original poster for A Birth of a Nation. And I looked at it, and then I said, yeah. I asked my wife, Irina, I said, listen, why don't you make, you know, this, remake this poster for, for our purposes? And being the artist that she is, she did it in like 15, 20 minutes. And I said, brilliant, you know? And so, uh, to be clear <laughs> with this whole insurrection thing and the Klansmen, I'm not calling the people who participated that day Klansmen. I'm not calling Trump's followers Klansmen. But from that poster, it's very uh, clear that I'm calling only, there's only one Klansman for that, and he's riding the, the horse. And just to follow up on what you just said, your attitudes, your thoughts about the film were changing over this year, right? Because I remember our conversation back in January last year when you picked up on the fact that a lot of the footage and photographs from, from the capsule, they were being presented as like, look at those funny people, right? Like yeah. dressed in, in, in this way and not the other. And I remember that you wanted to point to the fact that it was a real danger and and there was a lot of violence and and i remember i haven't seen that that violent footage at first it, it only resurfaced later so could you say a bit more about your your journey with this material over the year well i i went through a lot of the films the videos that that i had that george had assembled for me i did most of it in the summer and you know that meant that i went through it on google drive and i made notes and you know it took a long time because yeah i had to look at every video a long time a lot of times played over and over and again make notations for sebastian as to the bits that we would we would pre-select and so in the end probably i had uh, a couple of hours worth of footage for sebastian to go through but I, I stopped my work, my end, in, in like July because there were so many more videos that I had to go through that I, I put it on hold. And then I believe either late October or November, I was told by Apolitical and, 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 and you, Christy, 
that it was suggested that we make the film, we show the film independent of the exhibition because we couldn't find a space for the exhibition. So we just showed the film on January 6th. And that's when I said, okay, let's finish the, the film. And so by December, I finished everything. And in early December, I, I asked Sebastian, okay, what do you got? And I always said, we're gonna make a, a film at least 45 minutes. It's not like a thing that, you know, it's oh, for the, for the game and then it's in a separate room and you sit down there for 15, 25 minutes. I said, it needs to be at least 45 minutes long. And then, and then Sebastian, you know, he, he, he gave me a, a first cut for the first time and it was 17 minutes long. And I wrote back to Sebastian, you know, we got, we got two films here and one of them stinks. And the reason why the f we, we had to, and, and he understood what I meant. He, I say, we have to forget about, you know, approaching this subject like I did with the game, meaning a young Donald Trump, his commercials, uh, this uh, Trump steaks, the Trump vodka. I said, forget all that. We're going to just concentrate on, on the insurrection, and then we'll keep all the brilliant footage that you uh, made on your own, the ISIS footage, as well as Biden tripping on the plane and all of that. I said, and I didn't tell, have to tell him which part to keep, but he understood we need to keep, cut anything that doesn't go in the direction we want it to. And so after we just concentrated on what I wanted to do, which was to do an immerse, make a film that was a sort of immersive experience for the viewer to be able to take the, you to the insurrection, starting with the events of the day, early in the day, the speeches, the walk to the Capitol building, and then, you know, how they actually engaged and, and started, you know, attacking the police all the way through to the end of what you saw. I, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, importance of the historical context in the film. And, and specifically, I think your choice to start the film off with the montage that you've created. And, and I think, and you and I have talked about this, that I think when you see that montage and then you see some of those first images of those men in trees, that is, for me, that is like one of the most striking images. And I think coupled with the montage, you know, I, I automatically think of, of the lynchings and I think of Emmett Till. And I think that historical context is, is really important. And I think in this kind of, the current political debate here in DC really stems uh, from, you know, the GOP's desire to, to remove insurrection from, from the history of white supremacy and the current efforts to suppress voting rights. And so I'd love to kind of have you talk a little bit about the importance of that historical context and, and why these images. Well, I want to explain what that video is. Oh, much better. We should have had this in the beginning, maybe next time. So, you know, after the killing of George Floyd, I, I was motivated to write something. And it was a monologue where I'm pretty much venting off about what I feel, not only about the, the death of George Floyd, but about the birth of America, actually, you know, how it started. And, you know, say, you know, and I don't remember the, the uh, dialogue for right now, but pretty much saying that 
things went wrong from the beginning. And when we came here to this country and we told the people who were here, go away, you know, you gotta find someplace else because we, we need this land right now. And they kept doing that until they made sure America was theirs. And they called it manifest destiny, meaning it was the destiny of the white man, of the white Europeans, to take over this land in the name of progress. So, so that, that was uh, you know, part of what I said in that monologue film. Now, it was a 30 minute uh, film where I'm talking. And then at the end of it, I decided I, I wanna do this video using uh, Bob Dylan's You Ain't Going Nowhere uh, as a sort of you know, prologue to the, or, or end to the movie, you know? And I spent a long time, many weeks, going through archival footage and you know, finding things that I felt not only made the point of what I wanted to make with that video, but also followed the lyrics of the song. And, you know, and I did it as a music video, meaning I cut it very precisely to make sure every word fell on every beat that I wanted. Even when you see, when you hear Dylan sing Genghis Khan and his brother Don, and then you see a young Donald Trump, and when at the word Don, Donald Trump smiles like he's happy to hear his name because he's always been happy to hear his name. And so I, I put that in there. I also uh, put in uh, a black man being hauled off to jail in a paddle wagon uh, by some white cops. And then, you know, you see these black faces almost like jurors in judgment of what they're witnessing. In addition, uh, there is Depression-era footage of white people rioting. Uh, and there's even a, a clip there intentionally of, of two scientists working in a lab, and then one of them looks at the other like saying, wow, you got something there. And so all of these references are there for a reason. And I shelved the original film, but I felt like when, when I did this one, I felt like, oh, now's the time to use that film. We put it as part of this film. And one of the things about You Ain't Going Nowhere that I liked is the fact that it's a sweet song. You know, maybe it's a love song. It's a nice, it's got a nice beat. But for me, I see it in a more, not sinister way, but in a different way. I see it as like saying, you know what, wherever you go in life, no matter what you do, whether you're right or wrong, in the end, it's not gonna matter because you still ain't going nowhere. Mankind never learns. History repeats itself. I mean, that's the thing about that video. You could see history repeats itself all the time. And today and tomorrow, the same thing will happen here that happened when I was, you know, around in the 80s, and there was all this coverage on television about Oliver North and Iran and Reagan, and, and so much coverage about it, and we were looking at it every day. And you know what? That investigation went nowhere. 
and Oliver North became a hero and a, a, a talking head on Fox News. The same thing with the Mueller investigation. It went nowhere. And this so-called insurrection investigation is going to go the same way. Nobody's going to jail. They're not going to jail like black people would have got to jail immediately. Black people would have been shot down on site had that happened, you know? Since when, I mean, black people have got, gotten killed for walking down the street, for running down the street, for running and, and being a jogger, just for, for, for being black at night, for, for not pulling out their driver's license in time for, for the police not to shoot them. So the way these people were treated is very different from how black Americans and people of color are treated in this uh, country. And so, you know, we can say, oh, this one's going to get jailed, this, this one's going to get this and that. But in the end, I believe the Republicans got away with it scot-free. Donald Trump got away, away with it scot-free. And you know what? They're going to do it again. And if they had the chance, if Donald Trump ever came back to the White House and became president again, he's going to be worse than ever. And I'm, I'm curious if you were thinking about Washington, when, when you were thinking about, you know, premiering film in Washington, showing it here for the first time, were you thinking about the, you know, the history of the civil rights movement and, you know, and the fact that occupation of, of the Lincoln Memorial was, was, was always like part of, of that, you know, fight for the rights. And so when you say that the history repeats it and, you know, and we think how those sites were used, you know, to fight for the civil rights before and now, you know, a year ago they were, they, they had this kind of, you know, they featured in this way. Yeah, what, was that also a context that you wanted to address by, by showing the film here? Uh, no, but I was thinking about the fact that even after all this time, more than half the Republicans who voted for Donald Trump believe this insurrection business was made up. They believe it's a hoax. They believe other people did it and blame Donald Trump for it. And that belief is very real with these people. And, and remember that almost half the country, 75 million people, voted for Donald Trump. That's a lot of people, okay? And that's a lot of people who are still angry and resentful. And I believe that, you know, the war with the South, and between the North and the South, I believe the Civil War was never resolved, especially on the part of the South, because they lost, and they had to give up their way of life, including uh, slavery. And so they don't like the North, and that's why these so-called red states are so anti-North, Northern. They, they don't like the North, and they never did, and they want to, they, they want, people to leave them, them, you know, leave them the fuck alone. Now, they don't think about the fact that the North and cities like New York are the ones pulling all the, the tax revenue and that's filtered down to, to them, to those space, uh, states especially that don't make enough money and we have to give it to them out of our pockets. But still, they feel entitled and not only entitled, they feel resentful like we gotta deal, we gotta put up with those motherfuckers, you know, over there in the North. And so I think Donald Trump, as a New Yorker, he's not a Southerner, he's not from Georgia or Alabama, but as a New Yorker, he knew that's the people that I wanna use 
because I'm going to tell them exactly what they want to hear, and I'm going to not be nice about it so that they can say, yeah, that's my guy. He's talking not like a, a politi politi politically correct politician. He's talking like the guy that I want to follow. And that's why they follow him and still do. I want to piggyback a little bit on what Sylvia was saying and, and talk a little bit about kind of Washington as a platform, because as you mentioned, you know, we have a long history of, of, of being a platform for, for protests and for freedom of speech. And I think for DC, the insurrection is very much a local issue. You know, th there were not only on January 6th, but in the months leading up to it, you know, our streets and our neighborhoods were, were invaded by violent insurrectionists and violent protesters, not just on January 6th. And, you know, I think a lot of the country sometimes misses that fact. And, and you know, at the same time, politics is always local, right? You know, it's all, it's, it is local. And I'm wondering how this work can, can be used to connect those conversations, the local conversation and the national conversation. Well, you know, I, I don't know if connecting, connecting them makes a difference. I remember when Trump, during Trump's early presidency, the million women uh, marched, millions of women, you know, and men. My wife and I went to one, you know, marched, and, you know, how, did that affect Donald Trump? Did that affect Ivanka Trump or Melania Trump? Did who, Ivanka, who's supposed to standing up, be standing up for women, did, did that affect them at all? Did it affect the Republicans who now want to overturn uh, Wade versus Roe and take away a woman's uh, right to uh, decide what she wants to do with her body? No, okay? So all these protests, all these laws are being overturned, you know? We're lucky uh, if we still have some of the good ones, but in the end, I, I don't think it's effective because Donald Trump was very effective not only at doing what he did and making sure that the Supreme Court went his way, making sure that other judges voted for him, with, with him. And so he was very strategic. He knew, I need the power of those people. I need the Republicans in my pocket. And he made sure it's that. You know, so all this protest, yeah, does it get anywhere when the politicians are going to ignore the protests? Well, you could argue a lot of politics. It's it's like Bob Dylan. You ain't going nowhere. You know, I don't think I, you know. I think a lot of days we don't feel like we're going anywhere on the cap, uh, on the hill. You know, Republican or Democrat, like, are we really making any progress? And so maybe that's the same point. You know, with the protest. I mean, I think it you know gives people that. I, I'm thrilled that people have that power, but it certainly makes you question. I, I mean, I think at this moment in this country, no one, not even uh, Democrats, are, are really sure that they're happy with the government. And they won, the Democrats won. And they're divided against Trump, uh, or rather Biden. You know where they stand on Trump, but they're divided, the, the Democratic Party is divided within itself. Its own house is broken. So how can you attack the other side? The one thing about the insurrection and the Trump movement that you have to, if not admire, you have to respect, they stand together. You know, all those people, and, and you know, that mob, I call it a small army. Donald Trump had a small army that he, 
you know, that he told, he commanded, and he made sure they did what they were supposed to do. And all this talk about, you know, why weren't the police there? Why was the National Guard not called there? Why, why, why? Because Donald Trump, as president of the United States, made sure that his army would not be deterred, that nobody would be there to stop them from creating the chaos that they did. They didn't succeed in, in the Electoral College, but I don't think they cared. You see them inside like, yeah, we won. We got in there, we did damage, and we proved our point. And furthermore, I'd say that a lot of those people are proud of themselves, and Donald Trump especially. What I found really striking when I was listening to the speeches yesterday was President Biden said, um, my truth is the real truth, right? And, and you know, he was, he gave quite a lot of airtime to, to the other side telling the lies. And, and then, you know, across the day, you could see other headlines like the big lie. And, and it, it is very baffling for me that this, this day, like that was the, the truth and the lies were one of the major topics of that day. And that makes it, I think your proposition, when you are really focusing on the language and the visual language that both sides are using, even more interesting. So I wanted to ask you about that, like, because you, you made that decision consciously not to you know, engage in, in, in the truth and lies situation. Well, again, getting back to Dylan, you know, as, as he said in another song, everyone thinks they, that God is on their side. The Nazis thought that. Mussolini thought that, the Crusaders thought that, you know, they, they were fighting other Christians, Muslims, but God was on their side, not on the other side, only on their side. It's the same thing with the truth. The truth, okay, he knows what, Biden knows what the truth is, fine. But a lot of people don't believe it. And is it effective? Is it really coming home? Can we all believe, can we all cheer him? Can we all stand by, by him? Can we march? You know, with Biden, if if he called the uh, if he called us as a call to arms, are we going to do for Biden what these Trump supporters did for Trump? I don't think so. And just to change the subject slightly, like, am I right to think that you made a conscious effort to focus on the individuals in 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 the crowd that you depicted? Absolutely, because we all know there was a mob there, and uh, you know, Sebastian and I tried to show that that mob was a lot bigger than the Republicans would have you believe. The Republic Republicans are now uh, trying to make you believe, and they've succeeded uh, to, to say, you know, what happened there wasn't such a big deal, and besides, we don't know who was there, maybe it was the other guys were there, and uh, let's move on, okay? Or maybe it did happen, but let's move on. For the sake of the country, let's heal the wounds and move on. Again, you know, if there were black people, we wouldn't be moving on. We would be sending them to Guantanamo if we couldn't uh, prosecute them and put them in jail here, like we did to the terrorists of 9-11 who have been in Guantanamo for many years and without a trial. You know, you, you don't want to get your uh, hands dirty by putting them in jails in America where you have to actually you know, bring charges against them. So let's send them to Guantanamo. Why don't they send these, some of these insurrectionists to Guantanamo? So, oh, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> like focusing on the individuals, because it's something oh, yeah, that sorry, you do. Yeah, yeah. 
It's yeah. something that so, you do also in your photography, right? Yeah. Like, exactly. So uh, in addition to the crowd, we know there was a crowd. And, and by the way, speaking of the crowd, Donald Trump made it a point, and he lied and lied and lied to the American people. And we saw that you know, for his inauguration, he did not have a really big crowd like he claimed he did. But this time, you know, thanks to the footage that we had and showing this panorama of all these people in this stadium or, or, or you know, listening to the speeches, we see that this time, Donald Trump really did have a big crowd. And so, we got a crowd, we got a lot of crowd, but I wanted to get some vignettes of individuals saying something, even their faces, you know? Like, uh, the guy who says, the young guy who says, I'm from Denver, and I came here for Trump. Fuck CNN, fuck NBC, and fuck that Disney shit. To me, he's like a young Eminem, you know? He's got that anger. He's on Trump's side, but you gotta admit that, that he's, got, he's got his point of view. So does the guy who says, Fuck the, fuck the police, you know? Uh, and the other two guys who were yelling, fuck the blue, fuck the blue. So I wanted to get faces and people talking as much as you could hear them. Not much, but even during the crowd, you know, during that rush, that 20 minute, you know, minute, 20 minutes he spent in that tunnel with those people, and you see, see one guy coming out in frustration and saying, uh, well, what the fuck are we doing here? What the fuck? And there's, another, there's a young girl in the front lines, right next to the, right in front of the police with a red hat. And you could hear her say, I'm all right, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. I'm like, what kind of nerve, what kind of balls do you have when you're so young and small and you're right there not being afraid of being crushed to death in, in the front lines of that mob. So, to me, that, that was important to, to have and to be able to hear those moments, as well as when the guy, one guy is being choked toward the end, and I, he, he says, I can't breathe. And, and I made sure I asked Sebastian, make sure we can hear that clearly, because that's a reference to, to something else. I can't breathe, and then the, the next guy near him who says, why are you all doing this, man? Why are you all doing this? Well. It's a repeat of what happened with, with George Floyd when he kept saying 28, 28 times, he said, I can't breathe. And then people were saying, stop that, stop that, stop that. So that was very important for me to, for, to, to make sure you heard and saw those things to see how white people were treated in this country as opposed to how black people were treated. I think that what's really special in, about some of the footage, and it, specifically some of the footage in that tunnel, is that you've captured this compassion that some of these people have, that it's very clear that they've gotten caught up in something that day. And you hear these moments where like some of them are saying, are you okay, this guy needs, you know, like yeah. the, one of the police officers, like this police officer needs help, like yeah. he's been hurt. And you know, I think that's really, that's not something I saw, you know, when all this footage started coming out. And I think this is that other side. And I think yeah. that's what really helped helps kind of round out this story because you've really, in some ways, humanized those people, yeah. some of those people. Yeah, uh, there's another guy who's in the front and you hear, he, you hear him say, go home, dude, go home. He's telling the cops, go home. When the cop uh, who gets uh, crushed and yells that we've all seen 
he, when he yells, help, a few seconds later, that guy who said, you know, go home, dude, go home, he takes the guy's, the poli policeman's helmet, and he pulls it down, almost as maybe a protective gesture to protect his, his face. So th there's a lot of the, those moments where you get a sense of a, a little bit of humanity coming from these faceless people. Also, speaking of faceless, there's a scene when they get inside the Capitol building of this crowd just standing, and there's a couple, an older man and woman, look like, you know, someone's grandparents, you know? And they're very visible, and they got inside, and they're just standing in, in the front of the line. Uh, very, you know, and, you know, I've heard reports that a lot of the people who were there are you know, business owners, there are people, homeowners, people with jobs, professions. So they're not just a bunch of young redneck, you know, criminals, you know. They're people from all walks of life. And to, to look just for a second again, um, you know, on, on, on this group as a group, like, do you think we understand at this point in time what was going on, like how they mobilized. Because when, when I was looking at the footage, you can see that the people came prepared to do something more than just attend a rally. So I feel like that bit of information, like about the social media side of things and the whole preparation towards the, 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 that day is still missing. But I don't know what is your impression on that. Oh yeah, it was all over the place. I mean, I'm not on social media, but you know, Everybody, those people knew about it. The FBI, the police knew about it, okay? So they were communicating. It's not like the old days when, uh, you know, you, 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 you have a demonstration, but there's no, there's no iPhone. There's no way, ability to communicate where you are instantly, you know? And so uh, they knew it was time to assemble, and so did others. They knew what was coming. And again, the fact that it, it, it came to that point was because it was meant to come to that point and the, you know, the, the President of the United States made sure it went the way he wanted it to. Yeah. I think this is a good time. If anyone has any questions, we'd love to, if you just step down to the, the microphone here so we can capture your question and we can all hear you. First of all, I wanted to congratulate you on this uh, film. It's, it's Michael Moore quality for a first film. And so I'm very interested in how you plan to distribute it because it deserves to be seen everywhere. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, right now we're limited to this theater and maybe a, a couple of museums who have shown interest. But I, I do agree with, with you. That, you know, and I always said, if I'm going to do a film, I don't want to make it an art film that plays in a gallery. I want to make a real film that appeals to people outside the art world. Because, you know, I'm an artist, but I, I'm not a great fan of the art world. I, you know, I, I don't speak art language. You know, I'm a real guy, and I have a life apart from being an artist. Meaning, I watch television all the time. I look at films. I've known so many visual artists who don't have a TV, and I say to myself, how could you be a, an artist and not have a television? I've looked at movies all my life, especially old, I still look at old movies late at night, you know, black and white movies, because I grew up with movies, and I grew up with good music, 
the 60s, I was a teenager during the 60s, so I, I know good music when I, and it doesn't have to be music of that era. I know that the, Carter's, the Carter family song, uh, When the World's on Fire, is amazing, you know? And so uh, I felt the need to do a film uh, using music in an effective way. And Sebastian not only put the music together, he also put the, the, the sound, the, the moodiness, the, 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 you know, that, 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 you know, those compelling things that added to, to the atmosphere. I mean, I've always thought, you know, visual art has never moved me. On the other hand, film coupled with music has been very moving for me. You know, I grew up with Fellini, with Buñuel, and, and Scorsese, and Scorsese is a master at coupling music and visuals together uh, to pull the emotional strings and to take you where he wants to take you in the story. So saying that, you know, I feel like, yeah, I would like for this film to go out into the real world. You know, if we are lucky, we could approach, approach a streaming platform. I don't know if we can get that far, but I will try. Uh, Hi. Hi, you chose to end the film with someone, I presume at the rally, giving a prayer. Could you talk about why you chose that and like what messages you want to say about the role of religion in this rally and how this might relate to how you've treated religion in your career as a whole? Well, that, that uh, sermon was delivered at the Rotunda during the Capitol by a guy who, you know, we have the video of him. He's the one who starts singing God Bless America to a crowd a small crowd during the insurrection, maybe once they, obviously once they got in, he, he sings God Bless America, and then he delivers that, that sermon to these people. And as I recall the, the footage, he, he's got like a dog with him, and maybe he's blind. I don't know if it was a seeing eye dog, you know? So that, that was something taken from the, that day. And I thought it was very fitting to end it with that, because uh, again, it's a case of these people be seeing themselves as Christian crusade, fighting with God on their side. And he says, you know, he's saying, thank you, you know, for showing the, us the way. You know, it's like he's thanking God that we did this because that's part of God's master plan. And the other song that, uh, you know, precedes it is a song by a man, a prisoner, in, in the Michigan State Penitentiary that was recorded by Alan Lomax for the Alan Lo Lomax Collection of Prison Songs from 1947. And this prisoner is only really known as uh, Bomber Stewart, maybe D.W. Bomber Stewart. That's all that we know about him, but he recorded that song and others. And I, I find it's really ironic in a way that a man who's in prison, and we don't know how long he was in, and it was a maximum security prison, he's in there and he's singing about going home and he's got a sense of humor about it. You know, he laughs, he chuckles while he's doing the song. And so I thought that's great that we can end it that way, that, that Baba Stewart could take us to the end of the film and laugh at these people, at the whole thing. And he's laughing at the absurdity of life and death. Any other questions? Please. First of all, thank you very much. I, one scene that I was really struck by before you got to the insurrection footage was 
the young girls dancing on the podium, it, I assume sort of pre-Trump rally. Yes. Could you talk just more about what you meant by that and sort of how you think about the role of young children, especially in these sort of very conservative communities? Well, that was uh, Sebastian's find, and he put it in there, and I realized that's brilliant because this is something that, you know, they performed for Donald Trump during uh, a Florida rally. And so they were part of Donald Trump's you know, public relations machine and, and campaign strategy. And those kids, the funny thing is those kids, uh, we've learned, they weren't paid, they were stiffed, you know? Like Donald Trump always stiffs people, he stiffed them. And, and later now, they got a song for Biden. So now they're singing now for Biden. They changed the words and now they're performing for Biden. And that way they're performers, they're actors, you know, they, they have a script and then if the script changes, they, they play a different role. <laughs> so, but I thought that was great to be able to go back and forth between archival footage, between the gritty, gritty, gritty footage we see of the uh, killing of, by ISIS and all the other stuff, uh, including Afghanistan, uh, and then go to some a visual that's very, very clear and very sharp. And that sort of begins the insurrection. If there's no other questions, I, I, I want to ask this one sure. last question. You said at some point, and I don't know if it was just when we were talking, but I've heard you say a couple times, you know, you reached a point where you thought you were done with Donald Trump. I think as the news continues, Donald Trump's not going anywhere. I think many people believe that there is a good chance that he will run for president again. So what does that mean for you and your work and your relationship with Donald Trump after this film? It doesn't mean much, uh, except I would say that if Donald Trump became president of the United States again, and I could talk to him, I would ask him to make me minister of culture. <laughs> uh, thank you all. Thanks. Thank you, Andres. Thank you, Sylvia. And thank you all for being here tonight. We appreciate it. This podcast was made in partnership with Candor Labs. Want to learn how to make your own podcast? Hit us up. Reach out to us at candorlabs.com.